a lot of people can use a break from the depressing nature of what's dominating the headlines. And one of the people who was helping to deliver that break to seniors and audiences of all ages, both in person and virtually, is Elliot Gordon. Elliot Gordon has been on our program before, and unlike uh, a lot of the other guests we have, who some people like, some people don't like, the response to Elliot Gordon was universally positive. He's an entrepreneur, a former aide to Mayor Giuliani, a producer, and a talent agent. And he's doing one of the most innovative things in comedy, which may seem counterintuitive because in some ways it's very much a throwback to comedy of yesteryear. Elliot Gordon, welcome back to the program. Frank, it is great being back here. I had such a good time last time. I was here about a month ago. And you have so many fans. I got such a response. We heard you on Frank's show. We heard you on Frank's show. I said, you know, this is amazing. But you have got tremendous listenership. And it is a pleasure to be back at WABC. And I have to start by thanking Curtis Sliwa for introducing me to you. Well, uh, that's uh, most people would not be thanking Curtis for that. Most people blame <laughs> Curtis for things like that. You're very kind. Uh, now, we're very fortunate not only to be on WABC in New York, but a lot of great stations around the country, including since you've been here, we have added a number of great stations, including WVOS in the Catskills, the voice of Sullivan County. Great station out there. Great folks. And for folks that might be listening in that area now, we got into a little bit the history of the Catskills as it relates to comedy. Give people both who live there and who might be listening in Alaska or Tennessee a little bit of a a thumbnail sketch of why the Catskills was such an integral part of America's comedic tradition. Sure. What happened was, uh, Frank, as a young man, I had gotten involved, uh, became an agent, and I got involved with the older guys because they were a little bit easier uh, to have access to. And they said, hey, you know, Alan King, Jackie Mason, Pat Cooper, Robert Klein, they say, hey, just get us a job. You got 10%. You pick up a few bucks for the pocket. And uh, one thing led to another. So I wound up spending a lot of time with them dinners, lunches, uh, car rides, and they gave me the answers that you were just talking about. The competition in that small area was intense because all of those guys were there at the same time. Pat Cooper said, "L, I'm up there. Jerry Lewis is standing over there. Milton Berle is standing over there. Jackie Mason and Jack Carter. If I don't get a laugh every 15 minutes, I'm toast. I'm gone. Mm. And the young Jackie, Jackie Mason told me, he said, "L, it was a place if you wanted to be a comedian, it was a school for comedy. You knew you had to be up there. You couldn't get a job right away as a comedian. You got a job as a recreation director. Jack got a job as a lifeguard. I said, could you swim? He said, no, but I still got a job there as a lifeguard. And the idea is that you had to be there. So, you know, that's what happened. The competition Plus, at the same time, they gave you a little bit of chance to fall on your butt a couple of times to work. They'd stay with you. And believe it or not, you had eight over 500 places in that small area that at least were big enough to need a comedian and a singer on the weekend. And then, of course, the Grossingers and the Concords and the heavyweights. So that's really the reason. I don't think we spoke about this the last time you were here, but a lot of a lot of my compatriots growing up, they would go to the one resort that was sort of the Italian section of the Catskills, Villa Roma. Uh, How did that how did Villa Roma sneak in in this uh, surrounded by predominantly Jewish resort? Well, you know, very interesting. 
interesting. Is that in a Poconos Villa Roma? Or no, is that I, think, what I'm I think it was in, oh, uh, it was in, in the, the Catskills? Catskills. Unless I'm misremembering. Well, well I know, uh, you know, they said that the, the Poconos also had the beautiful hotels and the beautiful resorts. Why didn't they get all the great comedians? And it's really a very simple answer. The Catskills staggered the show times. So if you were a young comic mm. and you're working the Poconos, all the showtimes were the same time. You got one job that night. But if you're a young Jerry Lewis and you're in the Catskills and the showtimes were staggered to give you a chance to move around, you got two, maybe three. So the reason was to get the extra money. They're all ran to the Catskills. That is interesting. You, you know, when we you're an analyst of of humor and you've worked with some of the greatest comedians of all time, we're going to talk about some of them in a moment. But when we use the term borscht belt humor or borscht belt comedy, that comes from the Catskills. And people almost use it these days to be sort of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, denigrating of whatever content they're talking about. I really view borscht belt comedy as an art form mm-hmm. and something that uh, that should be celebrated, not something that should be thrown around as a derisive term. How did it come to be that borscht belt humor became to be something that was construed as an insult for comedy? Right. Well, first of all, the term borscht belt is because most of those hotels were owned by Russian Jewish immigrants, and then Russia is where we get borscht from. So that's where the term actually originated. But I agree with you. It that it is used in uh, in a derogatory term. You know, Pat Cooper once told me, without yesterday, there's no today. Mm. So the idea is those we should be learning from the success of those comedians and not, in a sense, canceling them or put them down. Now, look, could some of those comics be very corny? Uh, Jackie Mason and I one night were in a coffee shop, and I was saying, Jack, I like the old-timers better. I like your guys better. And he said, "L, what you mean by that is we were more well-rounded entertainers. The truth is a lot of us could do an hour and a half of mother-in-law jokes, which really wasn't that creative. Stephen Colbert, John Stewart, are a little bit more educated. But what happened with us, because of the pressure we were under, we became more well-rounded. We did impersonations, we danced, we sang, uh, we practically became a member of the family uh, because it was that type of an atmosphere. So we may have become more well-rounded entertainers, mm. the guys today a little bit more structured, more educated, but I think it's a put-down saying, well, they were corny. They were corny, but they were funny exactly. son of a gun. Exactly, no, no doubt about it. All right, for uh, people People that have become new listeners to our show since the last time you were here, or for people that didn't hear your previous uh, appearance with us, give us the kind of Reader's Digest version, elevator pitch on what it is that you do now. Sure. What I did is about seven years ago, I was speaking to our buddy Tommy Dreesen. Pat Cooper, Jackie Mason, guys I would be on the phone with all the time. And I would say, guys, you know, people ask me all the time the anecdotes, the stories you shared with me. I think I'm going to put it into a presentation and see if people really enjoy it or it bombs. And they all said the same thing. You do it. And if you fall on your butt, you get back up. Just do it. And it worked right away. I was sharing stories that uh, Pat told me and Jackie and Alan King and Tommy Dreesen and Robert Klein. And I find out that people really enjoyed the personal touch. It was nothing sensational or earth shattering, but it was just some stories that we had shared at dinner. And I would show clips of their 
funniest performances. And before I know it, I had a hit. They were saying, hey, could you come back once a month? Could you come back twice a month? And then when COVID struck, they say, we need you to stream. Once that happened, I realized I could stream to communities all over the country. Right now, I'm in six different states. They're taking me as a television show into the community, and then they're flipping it into four or 500 of their apartments. So COVID was really sort of a blessing for what you do. In a strange way, yes, Frank. Now, I was the first guy to get cut out of going, and all us live performance were. We were out of work. Sure. But I said, you know, maybe I could come up with something. And somebody told me about, uh, do you stream? Do you go on Zoom? They said Zoom. I thought they wanted me to run around the living room. I don't know what they're talking about. I said, I'll Zoom. I'll do whatever you want. Send a check. And uh, and before I know it, it just happened. I got a buddy of mine named Vince Calandri. He's about 90 years old, retired in California. He was Ed Sullivan's producer for 14 years. I called Vince. I said, Vince, how do I put this together? And he was great. He said, First of all, you keep those acts at no more than five minutes. He said, when I did the Sullivan show for 14 years, even the Beatles, we had them do two songs, two minutes each and then a minute with Ed. We brought them back in the second half because they were the Beatles. But keep that at five minutes and balance it. You got singers, you got comedians, you got anecdotes. And then I started bringing in interviews like our friend Barbara Feldon, Marlo Thomas came on. Cousin Bruce from WABC came on. And so before I know it, I got a full hour variety show. But people keep telling me, you know, we 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 like your stories. That ties it together. No doubt about it. Absolutely. I feel the same way. And uh, since last you were here, Pat Cooper passed away. And I played some of the clips that you shared of uh, of Pat and talking about his style of comedy. And uh, I think it was really just so interesting. However, now that Pat is is dead and he can't hurt either of us, are there any stories? <laughs> Don't be too sure about that. <laughs> are there any stories about Pat that you care to share now that he's no longer yeah, with there us? there is. You know, I spoke to his uh, widow, Emily. Um, uh, hey, not know, long- I reached out to her a couple of times and she never wrote me back, which was uncharacteristic characteristic of her. So let her know I was asking for her. I certainly will. And uh, I asked her, I said, you know, how was he like the last week or two? She said, well, he was telling jokes to the end. In fact, like right at the end, he was saying, you people are trying to keep me alive. I want to get out of (laughs) here. That's particular Pat Cooper. She said, but he was telling jokes till the end. And uh, uh, he was in his early 90s. And, uh, you know, look, he had a great life. And Pat uh, he was a very, very special man, very kind to me. We knew each other for 40 years. And uh, he was, all, like Tom Dreesen said, he was always on. That was the key. He was always on. That's, uh, that's certainly for sure. Obviously, anybody that's seen you in the show that you do, or even people that have, uh, that have heard you on this program, it's really, you have such a great energy and a great presence. Did you ever think about pursuing a career as a stand-up yourself? Well, you know, that's very interesting. The truth is I hadn't. I very much enjoy now what I'm doing is, and I told Pat, he said, El, he said, don't call yourself a comedian. You're not a comedian. I'll take you 10 years just to get your timing down. I don't want you to say comedian. So I said, well, I'm going to call myself a storyteller. He said, beautiful. So I tell people I'm a storyteller, and I'm finding that I really enjoy getting up in front of crowds. Uh, it could be 100 people, 
125 people that come to my presentation, and I really like it, and I'm, I'm developing relationships with them. Uh, I always shake everybody's hand at the end of the presentation, so there's a personal touch. Uh, I always listen to their comments, and occasionally I'll shoot out a joke. I, you know, I told Pat, I said, well, should I tell a joke? He said, if it Feels right, just do it. You know, a comedian's like a prize fighter. Mm-hmm. If you think too much, you're going to wind up on, on um, knocked out. If you feel it's right, throw it. And, you know, I find I'm getting laughs. So uh, I never thought of myself going in this direction because now I've become the performer. Uh, I like it. I'm having a good time. And the audience is responding. Well, that's terrific. All right. In a moment, uh, we'll hear more from Elliot Gordon and some of the comics that he's known and work with. And you'll get to hear from them as well, even if they're no longer with us. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. By the way, we'll take a couple of your calls as well. If you want to call in, 800-848-9222. That's 800 800- Four eight ninety two twenty two. 92 Elliot Gordon, my guest for the hour. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Talking a little bit about comedy, the Catskills, and more with Elliot Gordon. We'll take some of your calls as well, 800-848-9222. Now, Elliot, uh, I know you're a a proud Jew, but uh, Gentiles can make headway in the world of comedy as well, right? Oh, are you kidding? The the best in the business. You got guys like Bob Newhart and people like that talking about giants. Without question or doubt. You know, uh, Pat Cooper told me, he said, Elliot, thinks with the with the history of the Jewish people, that comedy was kind of a, a mechanism to uh, to deal with the tragedies throughout the centuries. And he said he thought that that's why they became such great comedians. Interesting. Oh, yeah. that is interesting. It, it makes sense. I know you're, you're also very vocal in terms of uh, advocacy and support for Israel, right? Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Sure, sure. Uh, I don't know any Israeli comedians that uh, that I'm a big fan of, but uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I've been to Israel many times, and you know, speaking of uh, Israel, there was a guy named Alan King, mm. and uh, he would raise a lot of money and go on trips many, many years ago to Israel. And uh, you know, concerning uh, Alan King, uh, I my my mentor was a man named Sid Bernstein, the great music promoter of the 1960s, Beatles at Shea Stadium, Cousin Bruce. He managed Cousin Bruce. Really. Uh, Oh, yeah. And uh, Sid did all those great shows. And I once asked him, I said, Sid, did you ever do a show with Alan? And uh, he said, Al, I know Alan very well. And yes, I did. It was 1980. It was a fundraiser that Frank Sinatra was doing for Governor Hugh Carey, who was running for re-election for governor in New York. And uh, we sold out Madison Square Garden. And he said, Sinatra brought me in as the producer, Alan Comedian, Sinatra Headliner. And I think Carol Channing was there as well. 
And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, you um, carry's plane was running a little bit late. He said, they got a call from one of his aides that coming out of Albany, they're about 10 minutes late. So they'll be at Madison Square Garden about 10 minutes late. He said, so I told Alan, you're going to have to stretch because we're running a little bit behind. Now, Frank Sinatra was very meticulous. Mm. He said, Al, we're doing a, we're a couple of minutes late because Alan's doing the extra few minutes to wait for the governor. And Jilly, who was a dear friend, sure. everybody knew Jilly. We all loved Jilly. He was a dear friend of mine. Uh, he said, Jilly comes over to him and said, Sid, uh, the boss is getting a little bit hot back there. Maybe you better go back and talk to him, meaning Sinatra. So Sid said, Al, I walked back. And Sinatra is looking at me, tapping his watch. We were like about four minutes late. He's tapping his watch. What's going on? And uh, he told, he said, I told him, governor's plane running a little bit late. We told Alan to stretch. And Sinatra said, fine. So we're just killing a little time. And Sid was a man of girth. He loved his pizza. He loved his French fries. He loved his pastrami. He said, so Sinatra tells me, uh, Jilly tells me that you're an expert on pizza. Sid, what is the best pizza joint in New York? And Sid told me, he said, El, for some reason, I had a flashback of 25 years earlier when I was at a restaurant called Della Veneri's in the Bronx at about one in the morning. And I walk in and I remember looking at the back table, nobody in the restaurant, one couple. It was Frank Sinatra and Ava Gardner. He said, it just came to me. Wow. He said, so I look at him and I said, Mr. Sinatra, there was a place in the Bronx called Della Veneri's. And he said, he just looks at me and he said, Sid, you got me right in the Labanza. He said, that <laughs> is the best place. But anyway, that night, Alan King had opened the show and I think Alan was one of the funniest men of all time. Uh, I, I certainly agree. And one of the things that I don't know that Alan King uh, gets uh, an adequate amount of credit for is he was really a terrific actor. I mean, if you look at his performance in the film Casino alone, which is a non-comedic role, too, he's outstanding. I mean, I, I mean that doesn't always translate, right, to have great comedians be great actors? You know, that's a good uh, point, Frank. And actually, I'm going to disagree with you. It seems that uh, comedians make good mm. dramatic actors. Rickles, I think, was also in Casino. That's right. Uh, and uh, he did something years ago with Clark Gable on a movie. I think it was called Run Silent, Run Deep. And um, uh, so Pat was not a bad actor. The problem he had was he cracked everybody up. Right. So when he was working with De Niro, uh, there was a movie where there was a hospital scene, and every time De Niro looked at him, he started laughing, and they had to stop the scene because <laughs> it was an emergency room. So Pat was, was, the problem was he was too funny. But some of those guys make pretty good actors. No, no doubt about it. All right. For uh, people that uh, may not remember Alan King or just want to hear him again, here's a bit of uh, Alan King talking about a subject that gets a lot of attention these days. The genders. About 16 years ago, I stood on this stage with about the same amount of business. There was always empty in the front when I worked there. And I was doing my wife jokes at the time. This is long before women's live and the ERA. And while I was doing jokes, I did a joke one night. I said, women live longer than men. And I said, the reason for it is that they're not married to women. Now, it was not a big joke then. This is just a part of a story. A woman stood up right about where you are, dear, who was a member of the State Assembly of, the, of Nevada, and this is absolutely true. She started to berate me about me being a male chauvinist pig, and there is no record, there are no recordings, no history, no about women living longer than men. Now, I haven't done this in a long time, 
and I dug out some of the obituaries that I'd like to do for you now, just to prove this point. Nothing has changed. Good evening. Can we, would you turn around so we can get to a camera? I put my glasses on. When I did this bit 15 years ago, I didn't need the glasses. But this is an obituary. Would you examine it? It's a Xerox copy of an obituary. New York Post, is that correct? That's Nothing correct. I made up. There are seven obituaries. Now, would you just read, without getting personal mentioning the names, what does it say at the bottom of the first obituary? He is survived by his Survived wife. by his wife. Could you read the second obituary over here? What does it say there, dear? He is survived. Survived by his wife. Could you read the third obituary? What does it say? He leaves. He leaves his wife. See, they change it around so he won't get bored. And this one is, he is survived by his wife. What does this one over here say, dear? He is survived. Survived by his wife and what does this one say here He's survived by and what is you know and well without survived by his wife yeah i want you to have that seven out of seven uh it's still it's still very funny he has a a timing that is absolutely absolutely timeless now you alluded you alluded to the charity work that Alan King did. He wasn't just involved in Jewish causes. He raised money for, for hospitals, for children, for everybody, right? He was a very, very good guy, very, very diversified, and he was quite a businessman. People, A lot of people don't know that he was a partner with a gentleman named Walter Hyman to finance Barbara Streisand's first national tour in 1964. So, oh, Al, yeah, I had no idea. Oh, yeah. Alan got involved in many, many different areas. In fact, I remember when I booked him on a television show that I was producing at the time called Leon Charney Report, drives into the uh, parking lot with his Rolls Royce, which he was very, very proud mm. of. And uh, just uh, just an overall good guy. But, you know, it's interesting, Frank, uh, you had mentioned uh, uh, Israel um, uh, two Two weeks ago, I'm doing a presentation at a beautiful place out in Long Island, and uh, one of the audience members after the show uh, comes over to me, and she says, El, did you ever hear of a man named Lee Salters? I said, well, I know the name. He was one of the biggest public relations men in the business. He was handling uh, Michael Jackson, Barbara Streisand, Frank Sinatra. I said, I had knew uh, the man who taught him the business, Eddie Jaffe. That's, that's how I knew the name. She said, well, she was dating him for many, many years. And uh, he had told her a beautiful story. She said when Frank Sinatra was hired by Anwar Sadat, President Sadat of Egypt, to do a concert at the Pyramids in around 1979, 1980, they did the show. And then they went to Israel to vacation for a mm. couple of days. And uh, his wife went to a shoe store on a place called Diesengolf, which is like their Fifth Avenue, expensive shops. And uh, she had told him that she was shopping. It was Friday afternoon near the Sabbath. And the guy really pushed to keep the store open to the last second just to make the sale. Uh, and uh, when Sinatra heard it, he was very, very upset that it's not a right thing to do to somebody. Why couldn't you go back on Sunday? And he asked her, did you buy anything? And she said, no, she really didn't care for any of the items. He called the guy on Sunday. He said, uh, whatever shoes my wife tried on, I'll take them. Send me the bill. Wow. And I just thought that was very sensitive and very, very decent of him to do something like that. And no doubt about it. And uh, Alan King was a big tennis player, right? Oh, absolutely. And uh, just, uh, I mean, just a terrific guy. I had invited him uh, on one of the television programs I was producing, and he was bringing, he said, can I bring down pickles? I'm partners in a pickle company. I said, bring down a pizza, bring down whatever you want. <laughs> just show up, Alan, bring down you. <laughs> and he was a very, very diversified. And Buddy Hackett, Buddy Hackett was another guy. Uh, he was in a 
show called The Music Man, the movie. Oh, sure. I think that's and, where a, a lot of folks still know him from to this day. And Robert Preston, well, uh, Jilly, who we mentioned earlier, J- Jilly, uh, Frank Sinatra's uh, bodyguard or his friend, had owned the bar Bistro on West 52nd Street and 8th Avenue in the city, and they always had great piano players. I knew one of the guy was na- one of the guys, his name was Bobby Cole. And Bobby, I had met many years later, he said, Ellie, he said, I was the piano player at Jilly's in the 60s when it got so hot. I said, well, any special memory? He said, yeah. He said, El, we're right in the theater district. And he said, when I would do a hit song from Music Man, which was playing in the theater district called uh, um, uh, River City, we sure. got trouble. Okay, you know, River so, City. Sure. Right, that's it. He said, for some reason, I would close my eyes, but I would always do it. He said, so now I close my eyes and I'm playing River City. Music Man's playing across the street. I don't know Robert Preston just walked in a place. My <laughs> eyes are closed. And he said, I feel some guy sit at the piano bench next to me and start singing with me. He said, I figured some drunk got up from the audience. He said, I open up my eyes and I'm doing a duet with Robert Preston for that song. He said it was wild. But Buddy Hackett was in the film uh, music man, he did pretty good. Hey, he did great. Uh, we're going to talk about Buddy Hackett uh, in in just a little bit. Now, did you know Alan? For I guess you knew him going back to the early eighties, then, right? Uh yeah, I know. I knew Alan in the uh, late nineties. Late nineties, yeah, so until what, yeah. the end of his life. That's right. I, I had always heard, and he uh, joked around about this a little bit in his act that he was a big cigar smoker. Yeah, yeah. And that did he, do you know? Because I enjoy an occasional cigar myself. Do you know if he inhaled the cigars because uh, or did he did do the standard cigar thing where he didn't inhale? Do you have any idea of his I, I, cigar specific smoking habit? I don't know. I mean, to me, it was like a George Burns. That gotcha. cigar okay. was part of him. All right. All right. We're going to talk about Buddy Hackett and uh, Freddie Roman. And uh, we'll get uh, Elliot to share some other stories in in a bit. Gene in the Bronx has been patiently holding. Gene, you're on with uh, Elliot Gordon. Uh, nice to meet you, Mr. Gordon. Uh, my name is... Uh Gene, Gene Perlman from the Bronx. My older brother was a stand-up comic. His name was Mickey Marvin, and he played the Borscht Belt many a time. And the party that really got him into the business, his name was Corbett Monica. I love Corbett and, Monica. Yeah, and he got him into the business. And surprisingly, you know, he just graduated high school, never went to college. But i seen him sometimes at the show, and I don't know, he did he did very, very well. Unfortunately, later in life, his wife passed away. Once his wife passed away, he lost it. He just couldn't do anything. He looked great, though. He had all his hair, everything. He lost his mind. Once she passed away, he couldn't, he couldn't act. He couldn't. Everything just went away, disappeared totally. But he, he did very well financially, and he used to talk about the Bush Belt all the time to me. And he used to hear a lot of funny things. And uh, that's the way it goes. But I thought I just, I don't know if anybody recognizes his name today. I don't know if anybody recognizes, but he did very well, I think. And I, I think he used to go to Chili's. I think Frank Sinatra was up there. And he also played the, uh, oh, what did he play this? Uh, 
the cult of cabana. He, he, All he right, Gene. The cult of cabana. Thank he you. I pre- well. appreciate the remembrance there, Gene. Now, the I know Jilly had a bar, but I always thought it was called Jilly's. Yes. Did he have? Uh, but there was bistro or or. Well, it went away. It was it was a bistro in the sense I think bistro was because they had a trio there, and that gave it the term bistro. Sinatra used but to. But that's ru- the same spot. Though. Oh, it's the same okay, spot. Gotcha. Sinatra used to say, "My favorite bistro." Gotcha, gotcha. 800-848-9222. John is on Long Island. Hello, John. Hey, how you doing there, Frank? First time caller. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for calling. Thanks for listening. Yeah, listen, this is great. The comedy, it's, it's really good. Uh, happened to 98, met uh, Lou Bacala Carey, my uncle. I don't know if he knew him or whatever. And you touched on 10 years earlier. I, he told me it really takes about 10 years to come into its own. I was surprised. I figured it's great. Great comedy, probably two or three years, and takes a lot longer, a lot more seasoning, I guess. Yeah, I mean, any 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 thought on that, uh, Elliot? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just a comment that Pat made to me. He said that if you really have the basis to become a comedian, it'll take you 10 years to get down your timing. And those guys, you know, their attitude is, hey, once you get up on that stage, you really got to be sharp. You really got to be a pro. I mean, Jackie Mason, uh, in preparation for his Broadway shows, uh, he would go into comedy workshops and advertise them as workshops. Mm. That this is not a finished product. Uh, one night he called me uh, from Chicago and he said, I'm going into a club called Zanies. He said, El, I'm 80 years old. I did five Broadway shows. I got an Emmy. Why am I in Zanies in Chicago? <laughs> but he said, at the end of the day, the reason is because it's the right way to do it. You've got to work it out. You've got to let these people know this is not a finished product. So when you put out a finished product, they trust you. Thank you, John. All right, we're going to continue with Elliot Gordon in a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. The night is long, the skies are clear, and if you want to go walking, dear, it's delightful, it's delicious, it's the lovely. <laughs> I understand the reason why you're sentimental, cause so am I. It's delightful, it's delicious, it's the lovely. <laughs> you can tell at a glance, <laughs> what a swell night is this for romance. You can hear Mother Nature murmuring low. Let yourself go. So please Frank Sinatra, accompanied by the great Milton Berle in that clip. Oh, Milton Berle, obviously uh, not a singer, but uh, as far as comics go, Mr. Television, Uncle Milty, whatever you want to call him, nobody, nobody better, nobody with a more storied career in comedy. This week would have been his birthday, actually, uh, Milton Berle. We spoke about him a little bit the last time that you were that you were here. Uh, He really was. Uh, an entity unto himself, right? 
Without a doubt, and uh, he certainly was uh, a legend. I mean, Mr. Television, and I really think he kept the Friars Club together for many years, which was uh, that New York uh, theatrical uh, fraternity for all the comedians. Uh, and then later on, Freddie Roman took it over. He actually bought a, the building and donated it to the Friars Club that they're still in today. That's what I heard, Frank. Yeah, it's and, really interesting. Uh, you know, and then I remember years later, uh, the man who sponsored me to go into the club, Freddie Roman, he became the dean. And Freddie started uh, by owning uh, shoe stores. you kidding. Yeah, I said, you went from shoe business to show business. I said, how did you do that? <laughs> and, uh, you know, then he uh, he was actually the dean of the Friars Club for many, many years. Yeah, Freddie Roman, another one, a uh, great one that we lost just, uh, just last November. Uh, really uh, one of a kind. What was it that made, I, I didn't know about that genesis of his career in the shoe business, what was it that made Freddie Roman so uh, unique as a comic? Well, he did develop his own style, and I really think he flourished with the Broadway show that he produced, Catskills on Broadway. Uh, and he told me, he said, El, when we saw how successful Jackie Mason was in 1985, I mean, Jack went into the Broadhurst Theater, that's an 1800-seater, uh, six shows a week, sold every ticket to every show for three and a quarter years until he decided he needed a hiatus. He said, so when I saw that, when Jack was away, I decided I'm going after that market. And he got Malzi Lawrence, Marilyn Michaels, Dick Capri. He said, I figured I'd put a troupe together. Uh, and they went into a small theater, the Helen Hayes, a 500-seater. And they did a year. They were pretty funny. And then they just kept doing it for the next 20 years off-Broadway. No, it was uh, a terrific show that I was uh, lucky enough to see. All right. Uh, Freddie Roman at the Just for Laughs Festival. This is such, such a strange world, my friends. It really is. So many weird things happened. For example, eight weeks ago, I flew home from L.A. to New York on the all-night flight. And I got to my little town of New City, New York at 6 o'clock in the morning. I didn't have a key. I knocked on the door. My wife said, who is it? I said, it's your husband. I'm home. She said, I won't open this door till you tell me something that only my husband would know. I said, all right, we have two children. Alan is 36. Fifteen years ago, he graduated from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Judy's 33. She graduated from Brandeis University, Boston University Law School. And they are bright, adorable, terrific, delicious, gorgeous, wonderful, exciting kids. She said, the whole neighborhood knows that. <laughs> I said, we have a little dog named Peppy, 18 years old, just qualified for Meals on Wheels. <laughs> she said, the whole neighborhood knows that. I said, you have a mole on your ass. If the neighborhood knows that, don't bother to open the door. <laughs> Freddie Roman, a lot of people don't know, but the Friars Club actually changed their rules to do away with uh, term limits for the office that he had. I think it was the the dean or uh, Grand Abbot, whatever it was, to allow him to continue to serve as the head. And it's easy to see why. I mean, you talk about a gifted entertainer with incredible timing. That's Freddie Roman. Absolutely. And all of those guys. I mean, there was uh, another guy, Stewie Stone, who was there all the time, and we lost him not long ago. But uh, that, that whole era, you're talking about Groucho, you're talking about... Uh, uh, Steve Allen, Johnny Carson, uh, Frank, they haven't been replaced. You know, uh, Johnny Carson, he was more than a late night talk show host. He was our friend. He would come into our room at night, 1130, 12 o'clock. It was just nice having him there. Uh, and that kind of like a chip on the shoulder attitude. <laughs> it worked with him because we liked him so much. And, and these other guys, you know, Robert Klein, uh, he wrote 25 HBO specials. Robert, very, 
very talented guy, good writer, and uh, who knows how many movies uh, Mel Brooks and Woody Allen did. So you're talking about one magical name after the other. I saw a list today on uh, one of the uh, websites, and they were talking about legendary comedians. Mm. Like they ran off five names, and I think now they look at Jerry Seinfeld as the old man of the group. Uh, and they talk about guys like Richard Pryor being a trailblazer, and then don't mention any of the other guys you and I speak about. Uh, I mean, well, if I'm uh, not Richard Pryor was a funny guy, but if Richard Pryor was a trailblazer, then Mel Brooks was a nine alarm fire. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, and all these other brilliant minds of comedies and the Woody Allen. So there's so much wealth there. And what I'm just doing now, and I think I'm just the right man at the right time. Pat told me, he said, El, you're old enough and you're young enough. You were, you're old enough to have been with us when you were a kid and witnessed us and hear our stories. And you're young enough to still get it out there. Don't let it die. So I, I just tell people, you don't need your medications anymore. You need Milton Berle. I, I, I think that's, uh, I think that's uh, such a refreshing thing. And as far as what you said about uh, Johnny Carson and Steve Allen and Jack Parr and that era in comedy and in television not being replaced, I think you're so right about that. And one of the things, because they still show the Johnny Carson um, edition of The Tonight Show on this network called Antenna TV uh, every night. It's on every night, and I think it holds up, and it's great. But one of the things that I don't know that I had a full appreciation of 30 years ago, but I've developed a, an appreciation of now watching what's on, is in addition to the monologue being just very funny, and in addition to them featuring very funny comics, there were great conversations. I mean, not everybody can do that, be a great monologuist and provide a great forum for the best comics in the world and then have genuinely interesting conversations, which are both substantive and and comical. Now, I mean, not now because there's a writer's strike, but uh, these days when you watch one of those late night comedy shows, they invite on the biggest stars in the world and they have them sort of play games. That's all. That's the entirety of the discussion is play a word game or uh, or musical, uh, you know, or uh, impression karaoke or something along those lines. And I do wonder why things went in that direction. And uh, and if a show uh, that followed a Carson-esque format would still do as well today. Well, you know, uh, I agree with you. And they did a special on the Johnny Carson show with the younger guys talking about being on that show. And I think Jerry Seinfeld put it best. He said, we all wondered what would happen to The Tonight Show. Uh, when Johnny Carson left and we found out, he took it with him. <laughs> and that's really the truth. Uh, you know, Tommy Dreesen, both of our friends, and Tommy, uh, 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 who had spent 14 years as the opening comedian for Frank Sinatra and worked for many other stars, uh, and he did 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. He told me, he said, oh, when the first time I did it, uh, was so key because not only did they have an enormous viewing audience, they were talking about maybe 30 million people watching him every night, but all the bookers and the promoters and the agents, they wanted to know who Johnny thought was funny to bring on to get work for the new names. Uh, and he said, Tommy got lucky. He said, I got a hot four or five minutes. And then when I walked behind the curtain leaving, they said, get back in front of the curtain. He said, you want me to sit down by the couch? They said, no, don't sit down by the couch. Just walk in front of the curtain. And Johnny got up and gave him the okay sign. The camera caught it. 
The next day, the calls came wow. in. If Johnny thought you were good, we want you. Uh, speaking of uh, Pat Cooper, Pat used to tell a story. I'm sure you've heard it a thousand times. I've heard it a hundred times that when he was performing on the same bill as Frank Sinatra, yeah. Frank Sinatra uh, w- tried to give him some feedback on what kind of jokes to tell. Yeah. And Pat responded angrily. And this is in his book as well. I'm not yeah. telling any tales out of school by saying, Frank, you know, I don't tell you what songs to sing. Don't tell me what jokes to tell. I- I'm trying to think. I must have asked Tom Dreesen this over the years, but did, uh, to the best of your knowledge, did Sinatra ever give Dreesen feedback on his act since Dreesen was his opening act? Yeah, I, I, Tommy and I are very close. We spoke the other day, uh, and uh, the answer to that is uh, yes, but only once. Uh, and I asked him, what advice did he give to you? And he said, "L, he told me, have a good time up there. He said, when you're having a good time, it's contagious. The audience has a good time with you and also be powerful uh, that Sinatra said most entertainers will say, reach out and touch the audience. He said, I never thought that way. I thought, reach out, grab them, pull them out of mm. their seat, shake them up, throw them back in the seat. Because the, the, the test of being a star is when you leave the stage and that air is charged with excitement. So those were the only two pieces of advice he ever gave us. You alluded to uh, Buddy Hackett, who, again, a lot of younger listeners may remember, m- mostly from the music man with that great line which prompts that song where he observes that uh, River City ain't in any trouble. And, of course, they found out that that it very much is. Here is a bit of a Dean Martin and Buddy Haggett collaboration, and they're talking about one of everybody's favorite subjects, marriage and food. You have children. How yeah, many? I got three. Three? Yeah, you went like this. No, you got three, haven't you? I had What's their name? Uh, oh, you don't know hard questions. <laughs> there's uh, Sandy. He's the oldest. And then there's Ivy. And then there's Lisa. You know that when uh, Sherry was expecting Sandy, you know, mm-hmm. she didn't tell me that she was expecting a baby. Did Jeannie tell you when she expected a baby? Oh, yeah, I could see. Oh, yeah, I could see, too, but the way I eat, I figure she takes up my patterns, that's all. <laughs> we both were eating the same thing. Then she went to the hospital and got skinny, and I'm walking around like this. Right? What, what do you mean, that did she tell me? Didn't she tell you she was having a baby? No, how I find out in the middle of the night, she woke me up and she sent me for pizza pie. So that's how I found out. She sent you for a pizza pie? Yeah, and it was snowing. Now, here's what happened. I'm sleeping, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm sleeping, and in my sleep, I'm dreaming I'm sleeping. You know? That's a swell thing, you know, like I'm enjoying two sleeps. You get two for one, you know? Oh, yeah, you're sleeping inside of your sleep. Yeah, in my sleep, I'm dreaming. So then I hear that, Bud! Bud! I said, what? She says, are you sleeping? I said, no, I'm weaving a Navajo rug. <laughs> so she says, I guess, you know what I would like? I say, what is it, old princess of denial? They like that kind of stuff, you know? Like, yeah. yeah. So she says, I like to have a pizza pie. I said, oh, yeah, looking to draw at my shirts. If there's one there, grab it. <laughs> we'll continue with these two in a second. But Dean Martin obviously was a, a terrific singer, but he had that legendary partnership with Jerry Lewis, who, of course, was a comic, and had no problem sharing the stage with, with other comics. Uh, Buddy Hackett in the clip that we just played, uh, but also people like Joey Bishop. 
that's also something that you really don't see much of these days, where people who are superstar actors and singers do sort of these live stage shows with people, with entertainers that are masters of another discipline. Absolutely. Why, why did that go away? Well, absolutely, Frank. You know, one night Jackie and I, Jackie Mason and I are in a coffee shop talking about funniest acts ever, biggest laughs, and he's talking about different comedians. And I said, well, I think it was the comedy team of Dean and Jerry. And he said, you're right, you're right. He said, in the 40s, I saw him at the Paramount. There was madness in Times Square to see these guys. And he said, Al, he said, I did the Dean Martin roast, the celebrity roast. And he said, I always felt that Dean could keep up with all of us. Mm. He was so sharp. And Pat Cooper. Cooper told me, he said, Ellie said, as far as I was concerned, uh, Dean Martin was Cary Grant with a song. He was elegant. He was classy. He was funny. He'd make fun of himself. He just had it all. The question is, where are those people now? Good question. You know, uh, maybe it's ego. Maybe people can't get together because, you know, when you're a team, you got to share it with each other. At that time, Jerry Lewis very much overshadowed Dean Martin. And then later on, we found out how great Dean Martin was. Absolutely. Here's a little bit more of uh, Dean Martin and Buddy Hackett. So she says, if you really loved me, it was snowing outside. She says, if you really loved me, you'd go out in the snow and come back with a pizza pie. I said, that's right. <laughs> now she says, are you going... I throw off the covers. I says, look at my feet. Are they moving? <laughs> a peculiar thing with me. A peculiar thing is yeah. you didn't do this at rehearsal. That's no. peculiar. Go ahead. Well, a peculiar thing with me is that if my feet ain't moving, it's a good bet that my body ain't going no place. <laughs> so she says, I'm going home to my mother. I said, on the way, pick yourself up a pizza pie. <laughs> and get your mother a five-pound box of candy. My mother-in-law's diabetic. Uh, by the way, if uh, people are hearing your discussion, hearing the stories about a lot of these great entertainers, along with a couple of the clips, and they'd love to see you do this show somewhere, how can they either find out where you're doing it in the future or maybe book you to get you to do it somewhere? Sure. sure. Very simple. Right now, uh, my website is under construction, so simply call me 646 675 one eight eight four six four six six seven five one eight eight four and in September I will be at Stand Up New York here in Manhattan uh, and in November sixth I'm booked into the Safra Community Center here in Manhattan and after that I got bookings really all over the metropolitan area just give me a call and we'll talk you know the Stand Up New York thing uh, anybody can go to that right? absolutely so uh, that should be it should be really interesting it's so interesting to me though that uh, a lot of comedy clubs especially one his legendary stand-up New York, which could book uh, comics from everywhere, they're choosing to book you to showcase a lot of comics that aren't even alive anymore. Right. What happened, Frank, uh, I was uh, doing a co-bill uh, with uh, our buddy Curtis Sliwa in April at a hotel in Connecticut, and uh, Curtis did half an hour talking about things he spoke about. I did this for half an hour, and when I left, a woman comes running out. She said, I love this. This is hysterical. I want you to talk to my son, and her son is the guy, uh, Donnie Zolden, who, um, who owns that club. And when I spoke to him, I said, I want to come into this club and I want to challenge your comedians with their type of comedy that they're doing now, uh, which is a lot different. And I want to say, hey, I could bring these guys in on video and a couple of anecdotes and get bigger laughs with them on video than you guys are getting with your off-color material. I want to give you the ice bucket challenge. And he said, you're on. Let's do it in 
in September. The that's going to be that's going to be wild. So people could contact Stand Up New York if they want to get uh, tickets for that. It, I've noticed with radio personalities that I've observed, some are very much the same when they're behind the microphone and when they're off air. Others, there's a very stark contrast between their on-air persona and their their uh, off-air persona. Some people are very effervescent and energetic and uh, very personable on air, and then off-air they're almost shy and reclusive. When it comes to the comics that that you worked with, who would you say was the same on stage and off, and who would you say was the kind of the biggest difference between their on stage persona and their off stage persona? Easy. Pat Cooper was Pat Cooper all the time. <laughs> I mean, he could just be sitting in the corner breathing, and you know that was Pat Cooper. There was an aura there. Uh, and Jackie, the opposite. Jack would be very, very quiet when I was with him, uh, introverted uh, type of thinker, and his comedy wasn't funny at his taste. When Jack did it in front of a big audience, hysterical, but at a table, it really didn't work. So people would sometimes be a little bit disappointed. We'd say we expected that onstage character. So uh, Jackie, much more reserved. Pat Cooper, same 24 hours a day. Yeah, that uh, that would have been my guess as to, to who you picked. All right. Elliot Gordon is here. It's uh, a real treat to be able to have you, uh, especially I know a lot of our new listeners on WVOS in the Catskills are curious to hear about the etymology of the term borscht belt and kind of where borscht belt humor fa- uh, fits in in the in the history of uh, in the history of comedy cousin brucey actually told me last week that they're launching a catskills museum uh, of or something along those lines where they're featuring a lot of the great entertainers from the Catskills. Obviously, he's so associated with the film Dirty Dancing, and uh, that's a big part of capturing that whole era of Catskills 1950s. Well, a friend of mine uh, had uh, uh, told me about that, so I'm going to be in touch with them because I think there's a lot of common ground between what I'm doing and what they're doing. And, uh, and hey, you know, uh, Cousin Bruce is a buddy. Maybe I'll give him a call to find out. Yeah, I'm sure he'd be happy to hear from you. Elliot, it is always a treat to have you in studio. Thank you so much. Thank you, Frank. This has been a thrill for me and I always enjoy being here talking to you. Uh, The pleasure is all mine.